Thank you for joining us for this episode today. We're joined by Dr. Chris Wolf, and we're going to be talking about implementing new dry eye technologies into your practice on the OI show. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by uh, my new good friend, Dr. Chris Wolf. Chris and I have uh, been in the same circles for a long time, but uh, I think mostly because of COVID, we haven't really interlapped with each other. So it's uh, been nice to do that. Chris, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you practice, and uh, things that are keeping you busy in and outside of optometry. Yeah, Dr. Katie, thanks so much. Um, you know, I practice in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm in a primary eye care practice, and um, and I I think about my practice as as I was trained. So I take care of most patients with most problems most of the time. I think that we can understand the evidence in primary eye care and know um, what most of the specialists are going to do. And when we it's outside of our scope of practice, we can kick it out. That's kind of how I practice. It's how I was trained to practice, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, what takes up most of my time is, um, I like to do this kind of stuff. I like to pick people's brains. I like to think about new ways of incorporating new treatment options into my practice and helping other, other doctors do the same thing. Um, cause I really believe that primary care optometry is the place that patients are kind of best served. Uh, you know, I, um, I've, I've also been able to kind of, um, had the, have the real privilege of serving um, on AOA state government relations committee for years and um, being chair of that committee for the last four years Mm -hmm. being kicked off now, which I'm grateful for actually not being kicked off. I thought I was, I was going to sail off (laughs) in the sunset, but I'm no longer chair as of uh, 2022, but I'll, I'll get to stay on and serve um, in some capacity. So that's a lot of fun. And it, 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 it makes me slightly jaded, I would say, but it also kind of fuels my, um, my desire to, help my patients as much as possible and, and try to be as excellent as I can, although I'm, I fall short often. Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, the process to become better is to admit that we fall short. Uh, certainly one of the important things, one of the things I love about what you do is you are so passionate about helping other clinicians become better. You're uh, doing that through a podcast. How can people find you through that podcast? Yeah. So my podcast, you can search any of your favorite podcast apps for iCode education uh, or iCode media. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E media. Um, and, and it'll pop up and we do a lot of the same stuff. We, you know, we have conversations more. Mine's a little longer form, a longer form uh, conversation. And I, I sort of will skate around issues that are not necessarily optometry related. I try to make it as optometry related as possible, but honestly, I, I get into the weeds on other stuff. I probably shouldn't get into the weeds on. I think it probably has more to do with people enjoy talking with you longer than they enjoy talking to me. So that's probably why. <laughs> you're you're just smarter with what, your time. What's this, what's this iCode thing? What's, yeah. uh, what's that all about? Well, when I, um, so I spent years uh, helping doctors and students prepare for their board examinations. And one of the things that I noticed while I was doing that was students and doctors are super well prepared to manage this whole preponderance of ocular diseases. And one of the, one of the real challenges they had was figuring out how do they run their business by managing those diseases. And so I thought, well, look, I can, I can kind of break down a systematic way of, of teaching you or recalling information to pass a test. Why don't we figure out a way to do that with your, with your revenue cycle in your practice? 
And so, um, so you can follow really good guidelines and really good metrics, really good regulations to know what you can do and what you can't do, what is a uh, black and white area and what is a gray area. And so, um, so that's kind of what I do. And, I, and then that's kind of spawned into figuring out, well, I love to manage myopia. I love to treat glaucoma. So how do we do that in a way in our practice that I can, I can find value in that for the practice and also after I've found value for the patient? So uh, you, you also have a pretty innovative practice and you bring new things in all the time and uh, you kind of are on the forefront of a lot of things. And you recently were telling me how you, you've brought IPL in and you're just kind of getting started with that. Tell us from the business perspective, how you go about making a decision that it's okay to bring in something that costs you tens of thousands of dollars and how you justify that. Well, I think first of all, I would, I would, um, thanks for, for saying that. I think the, the biggest thing for me is that I never, I never feel like I have to like go all in on one thing. What really works well for me is to sort of walk in to a, to a disease state and then I just can't turn it off. So for example, um, I, I, the tell, story I tell is my buddy Ruben Thomas um, and I were pressing on oil glands when we were fourth year optometry students. We got a scleral depressor out because a patient was having discomfort in contact lens clinic in their RGP lenses and they were fogging them up. And so we, we for the very first time, I took a scleral depressor and pressed against it because Ruben read a report in review of optometry something, you know. And I was just blown away by this toothpaste that came out of the glands and I had never learned about it. I was always thinking about my bony gland dysfunction as posterior blepharitis and just all this really thick telangiectetic vessels. So my point in telling you that story is it completely changed my approach with how I look at patients. So I can't not look at a, I can't look at a patient and not think about their myelomian glands. Now it was completely uh, etched in my mind. And so like fast forward years and years and years, you know, so we went, you know, years just pressing on everybody's glands, manually expressing them. And then Lipiflow came around and, and we were doing it with that for a, for a lot of years. And now you sort of find this space where patients need access. So like with IPL, for example, you know, fast forward years, I've got tons and tons of patients on topical anti-inflammatory medications, steroids, cyclosporin, uh, lefitograst. And, um, and so you see kind of this niche of patients where they're having uh, prior authorizations, they're having denials, they're having all these other problems. And I think we can probably serve them either additively better or, uh, um, or alternatively better with additional treatments. And so that's really, you know, I would say that in most of the stuff I do in my practice, it's not so much about like this big, I'm going to aggregate all this disease state management all at once. For me, I think that would be a failure. But um, what I think I'm really good at doing is saying, okay, well, I understand the disease state itself really well. I need a widget to do X or I need a widget to do Y. I know where that widget is going to fit in, in my disease state management. And I think that's one of the things that, so how do I assess whether that's going to be good? I know the disease state well, um, as well as I, I possibly can. And I find the areas that I don't know well. And then I can clearly see that like, oh, yeah, this would make sense. And as opposed to like finding a widget and then sticking it in and trying to make every patient fit that widget. So yeah. that's Have how you I done that? assess. Have you done that in practice? Find a widget and try to make it work for everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, uh, I think I've been 
I've been lucky enough to not do that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, but I see it as such a, such an issue for a lot of people. I wouldn't yeah. say that we've we've um, not failed with certain things. I mean, failure is pro- probably true. I mean, there's certain widgets that come out that the way the manufacturer wants you to use them as a screening device, et cetera, is like this is not this is not realistic in a practice at all. Um, and we figure out ways to incorporate that in, into our practice. And so, what I've learned by that is figuring out let's understand the disease state. Let's figure out where this widget fits in. And then once we understand that, then then we'll never fail with the with the widget. Do you uh, do you know what a widget is going to do before you buy it, or do you feel like you have to try it out on patients to be able to get the to know what the result is and know whether it's a failure or not? I think in general, I have a really good understanding when we get widgets about the evidence behind why that will work and why it won't work, and then you know, as I as we you and I have talked about before, then. In clinical practice, you can you can have you know evidence-based medicine, randomized controlled trials, and then you have this sort of clinical expertise of knowing where that's going to fit in. If I can understand this evidence-based medicine here, and I understand my clinical practice and my patients over here, and, and my patients in general, their preferences up here, and this is actually sort of a triad that Kyle Clutie really talks well about, and, and um, you, you should interview him. He's really sharp. But bottom line is that um, when you think about that triad, if I understand what my patients are doing and I understand what, uh, what, the re- what the evidence-based medicine tells me to do, and I understand my clinical practice, then I can pretty well know what this is going to do, but I can't know for sure. But, but understanding these two things can help me, you know, the clinical practice, the evidence-based medicine and the patient's preference that I serve and, and understanding where those things might fit in my clinical practice, I think really prevents a lot of failure. Yeah. So I'll speak to a specific example on that is you mentioned lippy flow and we have lippy flow as well in our practice, but there's, there was a lot of people that bought lippy flow and then quit using it because it didn't work. And, um, I think that that's probably because the perception of what didn't work and worked is a little bit different, right? My gland dysfunction is a prime example of, and dry eye disease Whenever we say disease, we have to throw out symptoms of, of our assessment altogether, right? We can't use symptoms as the, is the, this worked or didn't work because everything would have failed by now. And people, you know, do this treatment on people and then they expect them to come back ranting and raving about how it solved every single problem in their life, where the reality of most diseases, it takes some, takes a while for patients to necessarily notice it. So I was kind of keying into seeing whether that's kind of how you went into widget, because I've seen other people that they've got money and they've got patients. Let's try it. And I think that's a really poor business practice is like, what is this going to do? And I know what it's going to do before I even started on my first patient. And it's not going to fail because it's been done on a hundred patients and this is the evidence that shows how it works. And I think that helps us to know what we expect. Totally right. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. It's, it's, it's the idea that, I mean, you, you have articulated the problem really well with failures of widgets and why they sit in closets for a lot of people is, um, is you haven't figured out where in the disease state that you want to utilize that. And if you understand the disease state, I think most doctors do, they just haven't thought through like where in the disease state this is going to work. And, um, and, so and let's talk about another widget. Yeah. Like, let's talk about IPL. You just brought IPL yeah. in. Yeah. You're getting ramping up to get going with it. How is this widget going to fall into your <laughs> practice? Like, what do you, 
look at that triad. Like, how does that work with what you're expecting? And then we'll yeah, come back and, and find out whether it worked. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, my mind where this is going to work is in patients. And I've been marking for years. So again, to lead up to this, you know, for the last seven, eight, nine years, as I've been observing my bone gland expressions, I've also been observing the amount of telangic tasia on the, on the, uh, on the, my, on the, um, eyelid margins. And I can look back through my charts and I can tell you that 70% of my patients have, you know, one plus to three plus my telangiectasia on their margins. So if I'm thinking, well, is this going to work my patient population? I can look back at my charts and know right away that, that it's going to, because they've got those signs. So in my mind, when I, when I under, when I think about the, the way that, that we're shrinking vessels and reducing inflammation by shrinking those inflammatory vessels in the cheeks and in the eyelids, it would make sense to me that if I have a patient that has positive corneal staining or positive listening green staining on the conjunctiva or a positive MMP finding, which has been incorporated into my practice for, I mean, I don't know, seven, eight years, we've been doing that maybe longer. Um, then I can know that this is probably going to be effective. And if I have a patient that just have a, has obstruction with no corneal staining and no conjunctival staining and no MMP findings, probably not going to make a huge pro, uh, impact in, in them if they have no telangiectetic vessels on their eyelids or their cheeks. And so, um, so I, I think that's where it's going to really be a sweet spot. And I can know in my practice, that I have a lot of those patients that exist. So I'm not wondering if it's going to be successful. Well, yeah. at least I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I uh, recently did a lit review and uh, that's the beauty about having residents is you can have them help you with that. But there's um, there's about 40 to 60 articles that are out there on IPL. Some of them are studies that I wouldn't recommend to anybody. And then some of them have answered questions telling me that IPL isn't going to work uh, in the way that I might want it to. You know, I think there's this perception around meibomian gland dysfunction and that IPL is going to be the solution for that. And I think you alluded to that is um, it may not be as effective as thermal pulsation from taking a gland from no flow to flow. In fact, there was a study that was recently released in China that talked about that, but just so that we can kind of bring everybody onto the mix of what IPL does, if, if it's okay, I'd just like to yeah. review. There's uh, six main things that uh, is perceived as to what is bringing about some improvement with IPL. One is that it warms the mybum. Uh, I don't think it warms it as effectively as some of the other treatments because a gland will go back to its normal temperature within about a one minute of having stopped warming, emitting energy that then's absorbed by the chromophores in the hemoglobin. And what that ends up doing is it closes the abnormal blood vessels, the telangiectasia, and uh, that prevents the release of inflammatory cells into the vessel. Um, thus, it's, the third thing is it reduces inflammatory cytokines. Uh, specifically, a couple that we're more commonly hearing about is interleukin-6, 17A, and then a prostaglandin, E2, which is associated with inflammation. So when measured before IPL, and then after a patient has gone through treatment, and then measuring those cytokines in the tears, we see that that's less. And, you know, to you and I's discussion that we've had before is that that could be a place where patients may not need to go on as many pharmaceutical treatments as maybe we had used if we can bring down some of those cytokines in the tears. Essentially, we're stopping that process from happening 
before we're trying to fix it on the back end. It uh, activates fibroblasts and uh, you know enhances collagen production in the tears, reduces inflammation. This is one that I really like is it reduces inflammatory as well as neurogenic pain. So inflammatory pain and neurogenic pain, that may be an aspect for some of our patients that they really feel the benefit earlier than they would have with some of the other uh, treatments. And then certainly one that is really, really going to pick up with people is its effect on uh, on bacteria as well as Demodex on the eyelid. And I think we're going to be talking a lot about Demodex and bacteria and eyelids here in the next couple of years with some other therapeutics that are coming out. So I don't know that I, before doing this extensive literature review, had really thought through all six of uh, all six or so of those things as to how we may incorporate it in. And I like what you said, and, and you and I are on the same page about this, is the things that I'm expecting from my patients is their eyelids look better. That also their inflammatory markers within their tears go down. And if we're doing that, that means we're probably turning off the, uh, the hose a little bit that is bringing inflammation into the eye. And I think yeah. it's important for us to know what we're expecting before we go in. And that's the literature has already told us the answer. So then we can talk to our patients effectively, even before we have the treatment about what we're going to do. Well, it also gives us confidence. You know, it, it, it allows us and hedging our bets is not appropriate, but within all of the stuff that we hear right now is it allows us to be, um, it allows us to be measured in our expectations on a specific widget's outcome by understanding the way it's going to work. You know, if I, if I think that one widget is going to solve all the problems for dry eye, I'm going to fail because it's not going to, if I understand the pathophysiology of dry eye, it's not going to, it's not going to work on everybody. No. And so it allows me to, to be able to say, look, this is the, this is the place that I think this is going to work, but that's not the only thing we've got to do these other things as well. And, um, when that patient comes back after they've had that treatment, um, and you know, maybe their symptom score went down, you know, from maybe a, a severe to a moderate, but they're still not really super comfortable. We can know that it was expected because this was only a part of the stuff that we were going to do or a piece yeah. of that stepwise approach. And it is really important in having confidence in the treatments that we offer to our patients. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. I'll uh, close us. Thank you for being on this episode. We uh, really enjoyed hearing from you and hopefully we'll get some more chances to chat with you in the future. I want you to repeat again where people can find out more about you and uh, and uh, your podcast. Two places. Uh, the website is icodeeducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. Or you can search the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. That's Icode Media. E-Y-E-C-O-D-E, media, and uh, and you can find me there. Yeah, awesome. We'll also leave links below. And uh, thank you for joining us for this episode. Make sure to like and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Optometric Insights Show. 